Thank you for clicking. Thank you for listening. You're listening to the Police One Podcast, Policing Matters. I'm Doug Wiley, Editor-in-Chief, Police One. Hi, I'm Jim Dudley. Welcome back. Well, Jim, um, it's the first podcast of 2016. Um, We're hopeful here that everyone had a safe and um, happy holiday season. We're getting ready to get into a a big year here at Police One and across this country. Um, The ongoing discussion, of course, uh, around police use of force is is still as frenetic as it was at the end of last year. Um, Before we get into the meat of the matter on that particular topic, I want to do a quick commercial plug for a project we just completed at the end of last week, uh, SHOT Show 2016 in Las Vegas, Nevada. We had uh, five writers there, including myself. We produced more than 30 articles so far on products we saw at the show. make mention of just a couple of them. Um, Angel Armor is out with a, a new bit of body armor that has a new attachment system. So you don't have to be constantly working the side panels Velcro. You actually use a kind of molly hooks. So it, it always uh, hooks up in exactly the same place. I saw a motorcycle helmet from Sear that has um, Bluetooth activated emergency lights. So as soon as you go code three on the, on the motor, it automatically activates a light in the back and two lights in the front. So you have a higher visibility, whether it's day or night. Um, CERT, uh, Next Level Training, has had a practice, a, a training gun. It's got two different lasers in it. Uh, they've made it for Glock for a really long time. Um, I happen to be a Smith & Wesson guy, so when I w- saw the Smith & Wesson M&P CERT pistol, I got very excited. Uh, Trigicon and Aimpoint have come out with some new optics, uh, really good for your patrol rifle. Um, at SHOT Show Range Day, I was able to shoot a number of guns. The uh, Daniel Defense Super Lightweight, uh, it's only six pounds. Of course, that's before you put a whole bunch of stuff on it, but an incredibly lightweight uh, AR system. And a, and a company called Milcor had a 40-millimeter uh, uh, less lethal um, wheel gun that was uh, incredibly accurate. Um, really, really quite cool. Um, so if you go to policeone.com forward slash shot dash show dash 2016, uh, you can see all of our ongoing coverage of uh, everything from lethal to less lethal. And now that kind of gets us to you know, the topic of discussion, you know, the, 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 the tools and the tactics available to cops out there constantly being innovated, um, up to and including those couple of uh, weapons that, that I'd mentioned there. Um, you know, the AR system, the less lethal systems, you know, we have, you know, traditionally things like baton and OC. But, um, you know, Jim, you, you have a really good um, set of ideas about kind of the evolution of some of the, the systems that are in use, you know, and it's because the conversation has become so um, insistent that law enforcement make changes, but, um, you know, what changes really are, are, are viable, right? Sure, and I think the, the spotlight really um, focused uh, on law enforcement use of force probably around the time of Ferguson, Missouri, the Ferguson uh, incident, if, if, we, if we may. And it's, it's garnered so much attention from the general public and uh, people who um, decry the use of force by law enforcement. And I'd just like to review quickly um, the, the continuum of force that's, that's pretty much the standard across law enforcement agencies, and that is that um, your presence certainly uh, has an effect on people. Uh, your verbal skills should be used, uh, if you can, before um, physical force is used uh, in a situation. You move to hands-on force 
strikes, pull downs, takedowns, uh, things like that. And then uh, depending on the department, you may move up um, your, your array of weapons from a collapsible baton to a metal baton, side handle baton, pepper spray, uh, any number of, of weapons at your um, at hand, uh, some but not all. Actually, a majority of law enforcement agencies use um, the taser or a uh, electric um, shock weapon. Uh, San Francisco, uh, unfortunately, does not have access to it. Um, various applications of pepper spray, spray, stick on spray, a coating spray that'll stick or color uh, the offender. Uh, but but uh, we're hearing uh, suggestions of ad hoc um, uh, maneuvers that law enforcement is, is being um, recommended to take. And uh, I think before we get there, there are, we're just at the, the initial stage of focus on changes to use of force. I know some, some departments have gone uh, the route of using a water cannon or or what may be known as a sonic acoustical cannon. And actually in San Francisco, when I was at our um, special operations group, uh, we had a vendor come in and show us the, the sonic acoustic um, cannon. And it really did have an effect. With, without um, the type of sound that you would um, determine to be a disturbance to the neighborhood. So say you had an angry mob, uh, a mob that was getting physical, starting to break windows or, or took some offensive action, you can aim this um, piece of equipment at the body of the crowd, turn up the level of acoustics, aim specifically at that crowd. And, and believe me, I experienced it and it's a point of making you feel disoriented, of um, maybe slightly nauseous, and you, you want to move away from it. So yeah. it may be a good application for uh, crowds. As far as being able to focus it on an armed individual, I don't know. I don't know the, I don't know if, it, if that's been done, but I can see that as being a, a possible next step. But what I've really heard uh, most frequently is the training police officers to shoot extremities or to shoot a lower portion of the body. And I see you shaking your head and, yeah. and I agree that it's, it would be difficult to do for so many reasons. And I've, I've explained this in other venues that police officers are, uh, they learn how to shoot a gun in the police academy. Then twice or maybe three times a year, the officers expected to go out to the range, qualify with 75 to 100 rounds, hit the 70% or better um, percentage of, of marked hits, of hits that count. And you go through various stages of anywhere from three feet to seven feet to seven yards to 15 yards to 25 yards for, for the average law enforcement officer, not, not talking about specialists mm -hmm. or SWAT members or, or people that would use uh, specialized weapons like a sniper rifle, but just the general law enforcement, um, sheriff, deputy, or, or police officer who goes out on patrol. So there, there are various techniques taught, um, various stances, um, various strategies. I think now to just wholesale tell law enforcement officers in a um, 
non-shootout situation, an armed encounter should be um, approached with uh, trying to aim for a lower extremity. Uh, there's just, uh, it, uh, jump in, I, it's, I, it's, it's, it's fraught with, it, with hazards. And not only fraught with hazards, um, it, it's, it's not reasonable. And we judge use of force on the basis of objectively reasonable. It's unreasonable to expect an average officer or even a superior shooter, someone who's a really good, qualified, um, match-level championship-type shooter, to be hitting targets that are less, that's smaller than the center of mass, um, because those targets, those those offenders, those violent offenders who are, if we have to get to a place where use of force involves a firearm. The, the offender has made that determination, not the officer. The officer decides you know, to, to squeeze the trigger, but the offender has created the scenario in which use of force is a must, Agreed. is reasonable, Agreed. right? Objectively reasonable in, the, uh, in Graham v. Connor. Hitting that target, which may be moving, which also is maybe shooting at you, which has you under stress, which maybe you don't have cover or concealment, you don't have an ability to put a, you know, the, the butt of a pistol against a, a, something to keep you stationary. Just putting rounds on target in the center of mass is a very challenging endeavor. To ask a police officer to go even beyond that capability and to hit a leg, by the way, where the femoral artery could be hit and you'd bleed out in less than four minutes. Sure. So it's these, these, these thoughts. It, I think what we have to have is a, a more intelligent conversation on all sides. And, and as you and I have said, it has to be a two-sided conversation. You know, when these people come in and say, you have to change your tactics, you have to change your tools, well, let us offer you some ideas about what that would look like, you know, as opposed to, you know, insistence by some crazy radical person or group that, you know, you have to shoot at the arm. Or you have, can't, you shoot, can't you shoot the guy's, the knife out of his hand? Are you... Right, no, I've heard that. I've heard that from people. And, and I've got to say that we've used the same tactics for, 30 years or more. In my lifetime, I know in, in the past 35 years, we've had the same approach to use of force. But I think we're at a point in time where there are more uh, tools available to us. There are um, situations where you may be able to segment your responding use of force based on the offender's position. So. In my mind, I look at it as, as three levels of force to be used. One is with a level of force to be used uh, in advance, to be thought out, discussed, and, and to come out with a policy to say, for level one, we have an un, unarmed offender. What level of force are we willing to take? Two would be a level of an edged weaponed offender, whether it be a knife or a fork or an exacto blade, or machete, uh, machete, what have you. So, is an exacto knife the same as a machete? I don't think so. Um, if you have time, distance, and shielding, can you think about other things? Yeah, but I think right now, uh, in use of force training, oftentimes law enforcement officers are taught to see everything as a nail because all we have is a hammer. Hmm. Right. So then I think the third level and I think that this this one is non-negotiable when someone has a firearm, whether you're in an active shooter incident or if they've used the gun or they haven't used it, but they're armed with a weapon and they uh, with a firearm and they refuse to put it down. I think the only response available for a law enforcement officer 
is their own firearm. Yeah. I think that one's non-negotiable. I think you still have a segment of, of, of people objected to law enforcement use of force as saying, aim lower, uh, shoot the lower part of the extremities. You just pointed out all the reasons why that's kind of a bad idea. But even beyond that, if you were to change policy, if you're a chief in a small department and you say, hey, I'm really going to listen to what people are saying because it's the right thing to do. It's values-based policing. I want to do what the public wants to do. I tell you, you better roll that any new process out over a course of six months to 18 months Longer, because... Yeah. You're talking about changing training that is instilled in law enforcement officers and has been since their early days in, in the police academy. And if you're talking about a 15 or 20 year veteran, that's a lot of training to unlearn and to teach a new skill to. Okay. So I know from a fact and I know from my own experience that in a hazardous situation, when your adrenaline's pumping, when you're in a life or death uh, struggle, you rely on your training. And uh, when I was in a, involved in an officer-involved shooting, uh, when I shot the suspect, it occurred to me, I had my gun in my hand and I had just shot him. Mm -hmm. But everything was right. The, the threat was there. He fired first. I responded and it happened. I couldn't tell you the mechanics of when my mind said, go pull the gun pull it out, aim it here, fire to, to stop the threat. Because you went down neural pathways that were etched into your brain from so many repetitions of training. And that's the idea. That's what's supposed to happen. It's supposed to be a practically unconscious activity because that otherwise your life is potentially at risk. Right. You have to be so well trained at these tools, whatever, if it's the, if it's the taser, you know, I'm a strong advocate for cross draw on taser, you know, just put, sure. put the weapon in a different place. But, and so you have drawn those neural pathways, your brain says taser, you crop, you grab it, you deploy the taser, and then you can move in and maybe handcuff under power or, sure. or take care of business that way. But it, it has to be that unconscious. And you, if you're going to say, again, this is to me the most ridiculous notion in the world is to say to shoot the gun out of their hands or to do some other absurd activity. First off, it's not possible. It's not plausible. It's not reasonable. But beyond all of that, even if you had the ability, some crazy Batman skill, like we don't have Superman skill that right. humans just don't have, it would take decades of training to get that ability instilled in all of the officers so that they could safely do that and go home at the end of the day. Sure, I hear you. I think, I think also though, besides the first two levels that I talked about, the unarmed encounter and then an edged weapons encounter, not every single situation is the same. So the, the weapon's different, the, the, the offender behaviors are different. Maybe there's alcohol, maybe there's mental illness, maybe there's drugs involved. But maybe from the law enforcement stance, maybe it's two officers, maybe it's four, maybe there's six with a supervisor there. So in those situations, I think we need to start saying to our supervisors, if you're on scene, you, you see this unfolding, as a supervisor, start thinking about strategy. Designate a shooter mm -hmm. so that you don't have multiple shooters. Maybe it depends on who has the angle. If You, you can't dedicate two guys that mm -hmm. are right. out of range of the person to shoot and, and you have two other officers who maybe have a better angle or see something that the designated officer. So there's, there's some issues with that 
that sort of strategy as well. But but to just uh, for the 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 rock throwers at the use of force uh, incidents to just call for officers to be indicted, people to be fired, it doesn't help when the when people try to get up into the dialogue and say we have we want to discuss this and they get shouted down that's not a dialogue right. it's it's dictatorial and you, you, we're not going to move beyond that if that's if that's the answer just fire people and and stop shooting people it, it's got to change differently it's got to it's got to be involve people outside law enforcement i i strongly believe in epidemiology studies i strongly believe that the public health and CDC has a role in looking at the epidemiology of violence, looking at the causes, the factors, what are solutions, and do a, an overall study to, to, to involve uh, police to, to talk about the training that they've been shown, uh, training they've tried before. I mean, when people talk about water cannons again, I'm thinking about the civil rights <laughs> violations of the 60s, where law enforcement agencies were told, do not shoot water cannons at protesters. Do not put dogs or horses into demonstration crowds. So I think we're sort of going back full circle and people don't realize that we've been steered away from those tactics and sometimes rightfully so. You don't want mm -hmm. horses trampling people. You don't want dogs biting people. Uh, you know, these these sort of tactics may be violations of the Eighth Amendment of the Constitution as cruel and unusual. So we really need to think clear strategies with good evidence-based data behind them, not just knee-jerk responses. I think that's absolutely the final word because in, 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 I think you and I agree very much on this. This is the beginning of a long conversation and unless and until we get those you know, crazy Batman nets or, you know, just equipment that's not currently feasible, plausible, reasonable. Um, we have to continue the conversation as a dialogue and not some sort of mandate from uh, a group of people who know virtually nothing about law enforcement and the activities of police officers and it, on both sides. You know, we need to have a more more open conversation. Well, we're we're definitely running up against it on the time for this segment one of the Police One podcast, Policing Matters. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be back to talk a little about a couple of other important topics of the, of, the, of the week. Hello, and thank you for clicking. Thank you for listening to the Police One Podcast, Policing Matters. I'm Doug. Hey, welcome back. I'm Jim Dudley. So, Jim, you know, we were talking earlier about police use of force on the opposite side of the coin of police use of force is um, is police officer survival when being attacked you know when a force scenario happens there is um, you know it, it's happened because a, an offender or a subject has done something to cause the police officer to in the most extreme case fear for their life or the life of another around them uh, that allows them the uh, objectively reasonable use of force in, in terms of a firearm or another weapon um, you know, the, th the thing is, is that the officer has to survive that encounter. And, um, you know, as we'd seen in Philadelphia, when Jesse Hartnett um, was shot in the arm three times, um, he did a couple things that are really key to uh, police officer survival. For one, he attacked the ambush. 
he uh, he immediately responded. He got out of the car. He returned fire. He hit the subject on the run while his left arm was dangling off of his shoulder. Um, it, it, it's it's vital that police officers have the mindset that you know being shot doesn't equal being dead. Right. And um, in addition to to what obviously uh, Hartnett, I would believe, f- felt at the time. I'm not going to lose here today. I'm not going to allow this to happen to me today. The will to win is strong, and it has real power. After a officer has been shot, stabbed, wounded in some in some capacity, um, it's also important to have on your person some immediate first aid because the first five minutes can oftentimes be the the pivotal piece. Um, not good radio unless and until I do the, the Velcro thing, but I have. Um, you know, not only do you need to have your, your tourniquet, your first aid kit, but I actually have in my hand a really cool um, device from North American Rescue. You have to be able to use the tourniquet. So I have a practice tourniquet. And when you start trying to do, I don't want to say play with this, when you start working with this thing, it becomes pretty evident pretty quickly how difficult it is to put a tourniquet on yourself with one hand. Um, and that's not even introducing you know, the notion of extreme fear, extreme pain, extreme stress, um, loss of um, uh, fine motor skills. But, you know, talking about training and talking about repetitions, you know, having the first aid kit in the car is not going to help you. Having a first aid kit on your ankle might. Um, having the tourniquet um, also on your person could be for yourself or for, for an officer, a fellow officer who's been shot. Absolutely life-saving, but you have to be able to work with those tools. Um, and so I encourage, you know, getting additional training in officer survival tactics, just as, as I mentioned. What are, what are some of your thoughts on this topic? Right. Now, uh, law enforcement officers are taught, uh, well, let's just say this. In, in the face of extreme uh, danger, uh, as humans, we have a fight or flight mechanism that says either stay and fight or run. Well, as law enforcement officers... We're taught to stay and fight. When people are shooting, when people are screaming and running away, we are the salmon going upstream towards the violence, right? So it's, it's not something that's uh, ingrained in humans. It's counterintuitive, actually. So, but we're tra- that's what we're trained to do. Mm-hmm. So we better be really equipped on when we do respond in, in those means, uh, how to respond. And we've seen courageous acts often by law enforcement officers who who move to contact when everyone else is running the other way. It's got to be done with with some caution and and some situational awareness of what you're dealing with. In this case, Officer Hartnett, uh, I saw the the photos. I didn't see the actual video. It might be compelling stop motion video. But uh, the officers at an intersection in his in his vehicle, the suspect runs up to him shooting, leans all the way into his car window firing shots. At that point, you, by the officer's wounds, I would surmise that he holds his arm up in a defensive position. But then the suspect either runs out of ammo, stops shooting, turns and runs. The decision then is whether to drive off and seek help or to engage the suspect who may be reloading and, and going mm. after others. So in the face of current events, in the in the face of public attacks, this officer jumps out of his vehicle, engages, runs, returns fire, and um, he survived. And he stopped the threat. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're, you're right on point in, in talking about officer survival skills that 25 years ago, we were never 
taught. Mm-hmm. Um, the new gunshot uh, uh, stop kits, the tourniquets, these self-rescue things are essential to have on your your police rig with you. But it's how often do we train with it? Like like you've got this tourniquet and you're fumbling around with it. I'd say just like a firearm, this this is life-saving device for you. Nobody's practicing besides you. You've really got to take the initiative and practice with that thing. So you got to carry it. It's no good if it's back in your locker. Mm-hmm. Um, right now, you know, we, we're going to start having to put toolie racks on top of police cars with all the equipment that we're carrying. But, but oftentimes we've got uh, first aid kits for other people. We've got AEDs, the, the defibrillators for other people. It's really about time that police officers had um, first aid kits, self-rescue kits for themselves and to practice with them. Yeah, uh, Not too long ago, um, at in fact, at, it was at IACP, I was exposed to a program. Um, I wrote about it. It's uh, not off the top of my head precisely which, which city. It could have been Phoenix. It's coming to mind maybe that it's Phoenix. Outfitted all of their officers with an individual first aid kit and gave them the, I think it was... 32 hours of training, which is a considerable amount of training on its use. And the way in which it was rolled out, it was um, in it's this is primarily to help you in the case that you have a problem. But here's how you would apply it to someone else, too. And if memory serves, it was eight or six lives that were saved in just the first year. Um, thankfully, not yet an officer has had to have this um, life saving gear applied to him or her. But, you know, it does an awful lot of goodwill when an officer is able to use the, the kit that's meant to save their lives in the event that they get shot or stabbed um, and go out there and, and come upon a civilian who needs help, you know, in an active shooter scenario, this is not what's going to happen. You're going to go out and, and, and finish, the, finish the job of eliminating the threat. But if it's just a person on the street who's, who's bleeding from a car accident or something else and you can put a tourniquet on that person and save their life, get them to the hospital, write down the time you put the Turk on, do all of those things correctly, um, you have the ability, it's just an additional capability that law enforcement brings to the table. Sure. Uh, and it's quite compelling. And, and you know, I know from speaking with the officers who put the program together, think of the pride of the officers who've you know, been able to, to, to do that, you know, able to affect some family's life. Sure. No, I mean, when, when we learn CPR, that's a, that's a rescue um, maneuver that, that officers have used time and time again on other people. Recently, um, naloxone or Narcan mm-hmm. is being issued to law enforcement officers to issue because of the opioid epidemic and the overdoses from illegal or, or prescription drugs with opiates that, that cause people to overdose. So that's another good tool. Again, it goes on the toolie rack, mm-hmm. but um, especially in rural or smaller agencies where you don't have the response of, of ambulance or or fire or other first responders who, who could apply life safety skills. Um, it's it's yet another um, it's yet another skill to be taught to law enforcement officers, and they're using it and saving lives. It's 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 been tracked. Yeah, I, I believe that um, the will to win is based largely on confidence, on your own confidence in your own abilities, confidence in the fact that you'll that you'll place the shots that you need to be able to place because you practice so hard on the range. Confidence in the fact that if you do get injured, you can take care of yourself because you're confident in your skills and your abilities of doing that. You've practiced on a dummy, you've practiced on yourself. These are things that I think, particularly this life-saving stuff, the tourniquets and the, and the first aid kits, 
that's an off-duty practice. That's something, you know, when you practice with your blue gun, and I hope that you do, I hope that you practice with a cert gun or something else that get your repetitions of draw and squeeze the trigger and then assess what your area is and then maybe reholster and, and figure out what's next. Mm -hmm. But that this tourniquet is an off-duty activity. It's And it takes no more than five minutes a day to just do it once, do it twice, put it back away. Same thing with your dry fire or... You know, guys who use a cert gun on their television, when they see a certain character on the screen come up, they they pop that character with their cert gun, you know, and you know you got your shot placed because you see the little laser on there, you know, even after you've squeezed. So um, it, this kind of stuff, I think it, it goes to, in order to get that level of confidence, you have to have the the will to put in the, the work to get there. You know, it's, you know, it, it, like in any professional sport, the best at that activity are the ones who do it all the time. Right. Practice like you play, play like you practice. But I think you you hit it when you talk about the confidence level, and it's not it's not bravado. It is nope. confidence. It's your knowledge and you feeling secure in your own abilities, knowing that you can overcome, knowing that you can handle what's in front of you, and then get aid and survive. And I think survival is a, is a mental skill that you've got to hone, just like any other. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I tell students all the time, if you're thinking about a law enforcement career, uh, you can't go in the police academy and then get out on the streets and then wonder how you'll react in a, react in a life or death situation. Do You know, can you shoot back? Can you use lethal force on a suspect? You better know that from the very onset of training because mm -hmm. you, you, you make that mental skill you start doing the repetitions and then you go on the street knowing and feeling confident if you go out there and you have to decide when the moment hits that is the wrong time to make that decision yeah uh, the, when the time to perform happens the time to prepare is long since passed right um, well once again we're up against it we're gonna uh, we're gonna look into another related topic here Jim but uh, let's take a quick break sure Thank you for clicking and thank you for listening to the Police One Podcast, Policing Matters. Hi, I'm Jim Dudley. And I'm Doug Wiley. Uh, Jim, we had uh, a discussion earlier that involved uh, Jesse Hartnett, the Philadelphia police officer who was attacked in the street in a squad car, um, shot three times in the arm, and Hartnett was able to not only return fire but put at least one shot on that subject, who was taken into custody, uh, treated at the hospital is alive and well and was interviewed after the attack and in that interview um, slash interrogation said and in his own words i will quote him he did that attack quote in the name of islam he was inspired by online um, rhetoric from a group called isis some people call it isil or is i just call them jihadis um, this subject, whose name requires no merit, merits no mention here, um, said also that he attacked cops specifically because, and I quote, they enforce laws that are contrary to the Koran. Um, we know from San Bernardino, we know from other um, attempted attacks that were uh, have been thwarted by amazing law enforcement work uh, ever since 9-11. Uh, We've done a great job of um, interdicting these attacks. We do know, however, from both the um, attempted and the successful attacks, 
that there is a real, clear and present danger from radical Islamist jihad and jihadis in the United States. And they are oftentimes, um, they're in no way interested in going to uh, Sandland to participate in the war uh, over there. They're very much interested in bringing the battles here. Um, they read easily found online um, rhetoric from Inspire magazine. That's the Al-Qaeda magazine, Dabiq which is the ISIS magazine, it should be noted that Dabiq got a name that has some um, meaning to it. Dabiq is not only a place in Syria, but it is the place in Syria where, according to um, Islamic lore, legend, it will be one of the final battles um, fought in the apocalypse. So that's all warm and fuzzy. In the latest issue of Dabiq, you can find all kinds of... Um, articles about you know how to bring jihad to the united states uh, and frankly they they speak also of the um, san bernardino attack they speak glowingly of the san bernardino attack and the attack in, in paris that killed 130 people nine jihadists only were able to do that that's a fairly significant attack in issue 12 um, I, I want to talk about uh, the threat not only to the united states here i want to talk about the threat to law enforcement officers like jesse hardnett in issue 12 of Dabiq magazine, uh, it says, and I quote, You must strike the soldiers, patrons, and troops of the Taha Wicket. I think I'm pronouncing that right. Strike their police, security, and intelligence members, as well as their treacherous agents. Ruin their sleep. Embitter their lives for them and busy them with themselves. And it goes on to say, kill them in any manner possible. Um, this is not new. I mean, that's the, that's the latest issue, or the second latest, sorry. Um, but back in 2014, in New York City, four police officers standing on a corner in practically broad daylight were attacked by a crazy, radical Islamist jihadi with a machete. Um, a couple of those officers were very seriously injured in that, injured in that attack. Um, fortunately for us, two officers were able to return fire and put that jihadi where he needs to be, um, in the ground. Uh, ISIS and uh, Al-Qaeda are very much interested uh, nowadays more in the um, small arms attack, more, more in the uh, San Bernardino type of attack, more in the Officer Jesse Hartnett type of attack than they are in the grand scale 9-11 um, felling buildings and taking out thousands because it's a much more achievable type of attack. Um, Jim... What are, you, what are your thoughts on, on where this is all going in terms of the threat against law enforcement? Well, the threat is not new. and We've seen it since several years back. I mean, you can probably include United States extremists, um, our own certainly Timothy McVeigh in Oklahoma City, uh, the Murrah Building bombing, um, to see how vulnerable we are in cities where we've, we have not experienced these kinds of attacks. Well, now we have. Mm -hmm. we've, we've experienced several small types of attacks. Um, certainly the, the Fort Hood incident shows us that it's possible. Uh, certainly, Which one? There were two. <laughs> well, the doctor <laughs> on base, the psychologist yeah. on Bobby, base that yeah. everyone knew yeah. and, and uh, maybe saw the, the disposition and... And I think in some of these cases, if you look at uh, people like Timothy McVeigh, you look at the guy in Fort Hood, you look at the people in San Bernardino, you look at people who want to learn how to fly planes but don't necessarily want to learn how to land them, that those, those should be indicators and, 
and tip-offs to people who have um, close um, proximity to these people. And so, so we're thinking about it in law enforcement. We apply these, um, these trainings and tactics in, in just about any uh, large gathering. Um, we thought about it here in San Francisco uh, when we did the Millennium Celebration. Uh, we've thought about it for America's Cup, for the World Series. We've always coordinated with uh, federal law enforcement agencies who could stand up resources and assist us, uh, cameras and license plate readers and other tactical teams and things like that. And we always had an ICS team uh, set up so that we can coordinate everyone, so that there was deconfliction and coordination. But we saw the success uh, in Paris. We saw the disorientation in the response of law enforcement officials. We saw the same thing happen in Mumbai. And so here in the United States, we have to say, what are we going to do when we come up these with these kinds of incidents and threats? How do we mark people? How do we track them? How do we, what's, what type of force do we use? What coordinated efforts do we use in, in tracking these groups that are actively shooting, actively killing people? And I think we need to be able to apply the training to practical situations and, and have the mindset that we just thought about before. You, know, you need to know what you have to do when it happens, not afterwards. Yeah, and I think th th these attacks, particularly, let's, let's look at the Paris attack very briefly. Um, it, it has become now well known that those nine attackers actually did all of their planning in Syria. They were in Sandland when they, they made all of their tactical planning, then they got to Paris and they conducted their attacks. It becomes very difficult for that type of a large-scale, multiple individual uh, group uh, activity, particularly in the United States, because we see these patterns of groups. The hardest ones to track are the it's the couple. It's that San Bernardino married couple who re will reveal nothing to anyone else, and they have their own household. But they're a team. They're you know they're a cohesive team. You know, you look at some of the um, some of the radical right-wing groups. It's it's largely just groups of families, and so that they can insulate themselves sufficiently that their pre-attack indicators become a lot less visible. The most difficult one to, to ascertain is the individual self-radicalized person who only has radicalized on the internet, has never been inside a mosque, has never done anything to indicate that they've got this radicalized thinking, that they're the smart ones, and this is what it says in Dabiq, um, wear a cross, um, go to church, um, shave your beard, Blend in. Say nothing online. Never ever say anything online that talks that speaks to your thinking in terms of supporting jihad. The more you can bury yourself and immerse yourself as a really like a spy in the culture of the United States, the more valuable a fighter you become. I'm not quoting directly, I'm just sort of paraphrasing what those Dabiq articles are saying. Inspire as well. They're getting much more sophisticated in their communications. They know that we can track cell phone communications and texts. So they're using encrypted communications via Xbox and PlayStation 4. Um, for, for law enforcement, for, for the United States, for that matter, to underestimate this enemy would be, uh, in my opinion, a fatal, fatal flaw because these people are, they're motivated. Um, they don't care if they die in their attack. 
um, and they want to get to Dubuque. They want to get to Armageddon, and that's what they're that's what they're reading in these these magazines. I encourage you know every law officer listening to this um, to not only review the eight pre-attack indicators, which you can go online, Google Doug Wiley eight pre-attack indicators, and you'll find it the first result. Not only go and look at your JTTF memos, but actively seek out these magazines. Um, you can you can easily find them. The JTTF will also get them to you. But try and keep yourself well versed on what types of attacks these guys are trying to get um, even American citizens who are self-radicalizing to do. A couple of years ago, it was they wanted to crash cars on the freeway. A couple of years before that, it was we want to light forest fires. Um, the, their strategies, their tactics are evolving, and we need to keep up with that. Right. And when you talk about the JTTF, you're talking about the Joint Terrorism Task Force, mm -hmm. and the FBI coordinates with local law enforcement. There's a good network, a great network of training and education to law enforcement officers. The, the, the counterpart to the JTTF is, is the TLO, the Terrorism yep. Liaison Officers. And information, bulletins, updates go to those officers. I think the next logical step is to aim at the public to make them be more aware, to report these things, mm -hmm. the, the pre-indicator cursors. The, the ones that you're talking about, um, the, the radicalized underground with, with all these um, disguises and covers, I don't know that we've seen that yet. And maybe it's coming. Knock wood, it's not, but maybe it's coming. But that's really where it's essential for the public to take arms in, in this war, because mm -hmm. it is a war. It's, it's a war whether you believe it's happening overseas or if you believe that it's it's coming or that it's already here in the US but we as citizens need to be able to protect ourselves to see if you see something say something i mean that that's kind of you know that's that's been you know turned into a skit on saturday yeah. night live see something say something but really what it means is have situational awareness i mean as americans we all know now from from within that when you're at a a school or you're at a movie theater, you've got to, when you sit down, think at least, you know, preemptively as uh, what would you do if something happened? Where are the escape exits? Um, things like that. And, and if you're not thinking about those things, then you're, you're, your head's in the sand. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's, if, if anyone in this country doesn't believe we're at war, they're incorrect because the opposition has declared war on us. Whether or not we're actively fighting back is, a, is certainly open for debate. Um, you know, the, the level to which we should be fighting back is certainly open for, deba for debate. I, I have my own opinions on that. Surely you do too, and everyone who's listening to the podcast likely does as well. <clears throat> the point of this is that, th that the, the, fact, the facts are the facts. ISIS and Al-Qaeda in particular, Al-Qaeda on the um, uh, Arabian Peninsula, have actively tried to recruit people in the United States to commit terror activities, and they have succeeded to a certain degree. Now, as I said earlier, it, it, due to great law enforcement, we have actually intervened, interdicted, and stopped a number of these attacks. It's, it's just a fact. But to, to, to wander around as a citizen or, or even an officer that, can sit, that says, look, I'm, I'm, I'm in anywhere USA, I'm in any town USA, there's no reason for, for them to attack here. 
there may not be a reason, but there might be a sufficiently motivated individual in your town and where there were in San Bernardino. Who would have thunk at a Friday morning um, Christmas party among people who were the public works department? You know, these are the people who measure how much water you're using. Who would have thunk that was a target? It was a target because that person and his wife knew that was going to happen there. And in my way of looking at the world, you don't leave 18 pipe bombs at your house and bring just one to the party. They were en- they were en route to something else. That was a target of opportunity for them. It was maybe a practice run for them or is maybe a diversionary move for them. The cops who stopped them in that gunfight on the street, I believe completely that they prevented a terrorist attack. But the reason that San Bernardino was the target was because that's where the, tar- the, the perpetrators lived. Right. No, but I think it's also to spread fear and commotion. And, you know, 10 years ago, we were looking at all of our critical infrastructure across the nation and identifying critical infrastructure and soft targets and hard targets. But if you can cause disruption and chaos and kill people at a party, in their eyes, they're getting the job done. That's right? exactly right. Mission accomplished. That's mission accomplished for them. Because, you know, the, the, the strict definition of terrorism is the threat of violence or the use of violence against a group, a government, for the purposes of changing their behavior and acti- their activity. Well, guess what? In San Bernardino, behavior and activity did change for a while. So that was a successful mission for them. Now, <clears throat> were they successful in carrying out the second one? No. And failure for the jihadists is the ultimate shame. Um, they don't mind dying in the fight, but they want to finish the fight. Um, so it's, you know, it's, uh, it's good, good work by the law enforcement officers down there in San Bernardino, um, certainly by any of, and all of the officers who have prevented attacks. But, um, you know, tomorrow morning we could turn on the television and it could be another lone wolf or whatever um, based strictly on what they see to be their, their targets of opportunity, their sure. target, the, the ones that they know they can hit. Inspired by these publications online, they get the instructions, they go to the range, they, they, you know, they do all of the things that you would do if you have a bad intentions. Uh, they just do it in the name of Islam. Sure. Yeah. And I, I think going back to um, Philadelphia, um, you had, I think, I believe it was the mayor who decried the fact that it, it was. wasn't ISIS or ISIL related, yeah. that it was a mentally ill individual and, and they wanted to steer clear of the story of of any sort of terrorist related attack. But I, I think um, law enforcement officials said, hey, this is what the guy told At us. the same press conference, they were standing next to one another. The mayor said this wasn't and his newly appointed commissioner, of five, minted of five days on the job, stood right there at the podium and said, well, actually, this is what the violator said in interviews with law enforcement. I did it in the name of Islam. Sorry, Mr. Mayor, but you're wrong on this one. It's right. effectively so this, what the commissioner just said. Right, but that's my point, that I think sometimes we have a, a reluctance to say what it is because we there's there's this hypervigilant feeling of being... Uh, unculturally insensitive or culturally insensitive or or something like that but uh, I read last week on uh, CNN's website that they talked about since uh, the jihad has been the caliphate has been issued on the US that there have been over 60 terrorist related incidents that they can track back to ISIL or ISIS in over 20 countries since 2014 and they're updating it um, probably daily. Mm. So um, I think we're just starting to get that situational awareness. I'd like the government to 
do something with that, the analytics, and get it out to law enforcement and the public. Yeah. Well, we can rely on, uh, as you'd said, you know, the, the JTTF. I think most law enforcement officers, at least who follow Police One, also now know that uh, you can subscribe to Stratfor, which does some terrific a- a analysis. Um, and, you know, just going in your own time um, and being intellectually curious enough to Google some of these things. And, you know, you don't have to download them to your computer. You don't have to have that poison on your own computer. But you, you can view it online. The PDFs are there. You, you read a couple of these articles and you'll get a much better sense of, of what the opposition is really trying to accomplish. And if you do that, I think you're going to be very well prepared to pre- prevail in the event that you encounter one of these people. Said. Well, Jim, we have once again spoken over time on the Police One podcast, Policing Matters. Um, it's been a great time talking with you. We'll talk again in another couple of weeks. Absolutely. Hey, send us uh, some ideas. Uh, let us know what you're thinking and uh, uh, hope to hear from you soon. Take care. Stay safe.